Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am starting a new book review series. We are going to be covering, and maybe you guys would like to read along with me, Honey Bee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. So this one had a lot of requests and also recommendations. It's one of the first books a lot of us are gifted with when we express our interest to others about bees and beekeeping. And so I thought this would be a good time over the Christmas period to review this book. So today I'm going to be covering the prologue and chapter one. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about a very nifty creature that I learned about recently. So listen up if you want to hear more about honeybee democracy. Now, before I get into the book review, I'm going to do my homestead updates. And honestly, there's not a huge amount to say for this time of year. Obviously, I can't garden. Um, the chickens are still being like their chickeny selves. But, uh, you know, the bees are asleep and I don't spend a huge amount of time outside. Um, we did get snow starting on the 16th and it stuck around for quite some time. There's actually no snow on the ground today, which makes for a nice change. Uh, same yesterday, it was melting during the rain. And basically what I did is I had the chickens cooped up. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> when there's snow on the ground because they don't like to go out and scratch in it and I was worried about predators coming in if I left the run open so yesterday was their first day that they got to go outside and scratch around since the uh, snow hit they are slowly picking up on their egg laying which is kind of interesting because yesterday the 21st was the winter solstice so that's the shortest day of the year before things start to lengthen again but I think because the girls were finishing up with their molting that I'm now seeing maybe two eggs a day sometimes I get four which yes it's not a lot but it's better than nothing <laughs> speaking of predators I actually just came in from being out with the chickens and um, I'm sort of lengthening my time out in the morning when it's not really, really cold. So I go out and the first thing I do is I pick up Agatha and I give her her medication. Then her and Squeak get their treats for the morning, which is usually some raw oats with um, grublies, which are dried soldier fly larva. And then after I've done the special needs coop, like cleaned, did some spot cleaning, pick up any eggs, or egg, because only Squeak is the one who lays in there, I go check on the big flock. And I let them out today and let them kind of explore and gave them their treats and did a clean of their coop and picked up any eggs and all that kind of stuff. And then I was just sort of wandering around and I decided to check if meat butt was still having issues with Bumblefoot so it took me a little while to catch her and right as I caught her actually I suddenly heard alarm calls from some of the hens and I look up in time to see a hawk swooping down. Now thankfully 
the three hens that were sort of by themselves ran under cover. I have some fir trees with very, very low branches. It's very difficult to get in there. And they went in there. So the hawk didn't even try after that, just flew up into a tree um, and watched. And the other girls immediately took cover. They were nearer the run. So a number of them ran into the run and then into the coop. And the rest of them ran under, there's like an old uh, rabbit hutch or something by the shed. And they hunkered down there and the rooster was calling to make sure all the girls came back. Well, what happened is the three girls under the fur were too afraid to come back out. But I didn't want to leave them separated. So I kind of scrambled in there and got a little bit um, cut up on some of the furs to basically flush them out. And then I chased them back to the coop so that everyone could be together took some pictures of the hawk on my phone, watched it for a little bit. And then once it flew off, I came inside. So I do feel pretty good about the fact that I kept them in when it was snowing or when there's snow on the ground, because I think that's when hawks and other predators, you know, they're hungry, they're going to make more of a play for it. And I think that, you know, the chickens can't get around as well in the snow with their kind of bumbly runs. So it was interesting because uh, the rooster definitely prioritized the girls that he was with as opposed to kind of running out to rescue the girls who were separated. So that was kind of interesting to observe. Speaking of the rooster, we're still kind of doing this delicate dance of trust and nervousness. Um, He does challenge me sometimes, but not really very much and not fiercely like he was. So for a while there, I never turned my back on him because he would like run up and peck me or chest bump me or whatever. But now he really seems to have calmed down a lot. He's still very nervy, but all the time he's getting a little bit braver. And I really think that this kind of initial show that he does in the morning where if he can, he'll bump me a little bit and then he sort of, you know, fluffs himself up and looks all majestic. And I think that's for the ladies. I think that's his way of saying like, I'm top rooster here, girls. I've got you. You're all good. Um, He might also be doing his job of fertilizing some of the girls because I had this huge egg. And I knew looking at it that it was going to be a double yolker. So I cracked it into a bowl and it was, there was one perfect yolk and there was one yolk that I really think might have been fertilized. And what we were seeing was the very, very early stages of a chicken embryo. I'm going to try and remember to put a picture up on the blog or Instagram or both. So my husband, bless him, I showed it to him and he tried to dissect what he could of the potential chicken embryo but it was just too small um really to to examine that way but it was very interesting so I'll put a picture up and anyone with chickeny experience you can let me know what you think whether it's just kind of one of those weird like bloody or meaty eggs or whether you think it does look like a chicken embryo I have noticed that the hens do really listen to the rooster, which is great. If he alarm calls, they will come running or they'll hunker down somewhere. What was really lucky for me was um, I went to close the run up a little earlier than usual one day and noticed that three hens were off adventuring by the beehives, whereas all the rest were ready for bed. And I was considering herding them home, but you know, when I try and herd them, they usually just kind of run off in all different kind of directions. So I wasn't sure it was going to work. And the rooster actually let out this kind of bizarre 
growling, rumbling call, which apparently meant come home now because the three adventurers immediately ran to him into the run and I was able to close everything up and put them to bed. So that was great. I really appreciate that. If only I could train him to do it on demand, that would be perfect. Before I go on to my hive updates, of which there's not much, I just wanted to say that starting with this episode, I'm going to be switching things up a little bit. So usually during the homestead updates is when I also talk about things like my physical health or my mental health. But I've decided that I'm going to move those updates to the end of the episode because although I actually do receive positive feedback about how open I am when it comes to sharing my struggles, which I always really appreciate, I love to hear from you guys, I also want to give listeners the option to skip that, whether it's because you're just not interested, maybe you find it upsetting, whatever the cause or whatever the reason. Um, I realise that it's it's pretty difficult to, to fast forward in an episode without accidentally missing something. So this way I figure you can get my home setting updates, you get my hive updates, I give the meat of the episode and then right at the end I will give my personal updates and if you don't want to hear you can just switch off right before that happens and it's all nice and easy and if you do want to hear you just listen all the way till the end so hopefully that makes sense hopefully it's going to work for you guys um just let me know so as for hive updates obviously I don't have a lot of news uh because it's been very very cold I will say that on the last mild day that we had um I saw some bees doing cleansing flights and I also saw an increase in dead bees being kicked out as they sort of woke up a little bit and were removing the corpses, which is always a good sign, as strange as that sounds. Um, I have been musing a little bit about how comparison is the thief of joy. And by this, I mean that when I look at other people's colonies online and how they're doing this winter, I can't help but feel that mine aren't doing great. And I know I've been upfront about the fact that it's been a rough year and I'm not super confident about how many colonies are gonna survive this winter. Um, I think some of it is that people in similar climates have seen a lot more dead bees being kicked out of their hives. And that's actually not a bad thing. Um, There's still some summer bees that are alive who will pass and be kicked out and so very big colonies are going to have a bigger amount of dead bodies and so I was freaking out because I'm thinking oh my colony is so weak and small that there's just not very many dead bees or is it that um, they're too weak to drag the bodies out because that can happen as well and they just kind of build up in the bottom there But then I started thinking about how very, very late in autumn, actually going into winter, the last checks that I did before I had to stop going in because of the cold, they were raising brood much, much later in the year. And those brood, when they hatch, will be winter bees that will be fed royal jelly and as a response will live longer through the winter period. And so I'm wondering if I'm seeing a decrease in dead bees because um, 
a number of the summer bees have already passed and what we're looking at now is a lot of these longer lived winter bees who are still clustered. That's what I'm hoping anyway and I guess only time will tell. I did see on the weather forecast that tomorrow we're supposed to be getting potentially a high of 51 degrees. So I'm going to run out and put some more fondant out for the bees just to make sure they have enough food. I actually just mixed them up today. So fingers crossed that I can get out there tomorrow and just make sure that they have additional food if they need it. Okay, so... At the beginning of this episode, I said that I wanted to talk about a creature that I just learned about. And by this, I don't mean that I just discovered it exists, but that I looked into it a little bit more and became fascinated. So on today's random corner, I want to talk a little bit about the Virginia opossum. Now, what led to this is that just past our property, there was a huge opossum that had been hit by a car and because I'm one of those weirdos I'm very interested in roadkill in the sense that I, I like to check them out see if anything is salvageable like skulls or vertebra um, and so I went to check out this opossum it was not salvageable but it was probably the largest one I have ever seen in my life now sadly the possums as we call them in the US we don't we drop the o as adorable and fascinating as they are you're going to see them a lot as roadkill and i see them quite a lot around here probably second to the amount of dead raccoons that i see on the side of the road but the raccoon deaths are probably increasing because we have canine distemper outbreak which the raccoons are getting and it makes them act really erratically and so they are more frequently wandering into roads. Now I actually really hate to see dead possums because I'm really rather fond of them. They're actually marsupials which basically means that instead of being placental mammals, so mammals that carry their babies inside with the placenta attached and then give birth when the babies are mostly capable of surviving, And I say mostly because obviously some mammals need a ton of care when they come out and so on and so forth. But marsupials have a little pouch and their babies come out when they're teeny tiny, but then finish their development inside that abdominal pouch. And marsupials as a whole are super fascinating. And you're probably used to marsupials if you think about a kangaroo or a koala. Now, what I find interesting about our possums here in the US is that they're pretty much maligned as a disease-ridden pest and they're no good for anything. And some of this is because they are prone to rummaging through conveniently accessed trash cans. So you have probably seen them even if you live in quite an urban environment. But the Virginia opossum, which is also called the North American opossum, is almost completely resistant to rabies and actually helps hinder the spread of Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever because they eat so many ticks. I mean, these little critters eat enough ticks that it can be demonstrated that they are actively helping to prevent the spread of Lyme disease. And that's pretty impressive. 
So when I found this absolutely ginormous dead possum, I started wondering what their size range is. So what is the maximum recorded size of a possum? And this in turn led me to learn a lot more about this neat, wild and almost urban animal. And as a result, I am now going to tell you some really nifty facts that I learned about the Virginia opossum. So despite its furless tail that reminds a lot of us of like a rat or a mouse, it is not related to rodents. As a marsupial, it's actually more closely related to others such as koalas and kangaroos. It is the only marsupial found north of Mexico. The word opossum comes from an Algonquin word, wapathemwa, which means white animal, and perhaps was so named because the opossum has a white face. Most people simply call this animal possum, dropping the O, even though true possums are the marsupials that live in Australia. The ancestors of our US marsupial friend lived in South America, migrating north around three million years ago. Opossums currently range across the US and even up into Ontario, Canada. The Virginia opossum is not native to the west coast of the US, so when the ancestors of the current opossum were coming into North America, they stayed predominantly in the central and eastern areas, but it was deliberately introduced to the West Coast during the Great Depression, likely as a food source. This interesting little marsupial is semi-arboreal and nocturnal, although you will sometimes see them out during the day or during dusk and dawn. They do vary in size, with those in more northern areas being larger than those in the more sort of southern tropical areas. They measure from 13 to 37 inches in length from the tip of their nose to the base of their tail, with their tail adding an additional 8.5 to 19 inches. Males, which are called jacks, are larger than the females, which are called jills, with males ranging in weight from 1.7 to 14 pounds, while the females range from 0.7 to 8 two pounds so that's a huge size difference and that's because as I said the ones living in more tropical areas are actually quite small compared to those living further north I would definitely hazard a guess that the male that I found probably weighed in the 14 pound region they have grey brown fur and white faces their long hairless tails are actually prehensile and aid them in climbing or even holding onto small objects. Opossums have 50 teeth, five zero teeth, which is more than any other North American land mammal. Their rear feet have opposable thumbs and the jacks, I'm sorry, the jills, the girls, have 13 nipples arranged in a circle with one in the middle, which is just so bizarre, but does make sense if you think of the fact that these nipples are in the pouch area. So this allows all of the little babies to be able to latch onto a nipple while still being in the pouch without it becoming, I guess, overcrowded. It, they couldn't fit as many if it was just a straight line of nipples. Another unique fact about the opossum is that they have surprisingly small brains for their overall size. 
This is called encephalization quotient in fancy science circles. And it's basically just the um, difference between the brain size and the overall mass of the animal. So a possum has a brain that is just one fifth the size of a raccoon's. That's really, really small. And this probably explains why possums are often encountered in um, like in your trash can or they got stuck somewhere they weren't supposed to be or they just wander in front of a car because sadly these little guys are just not very smart. Now, what you probably know about possums is that they are known for playing dead. This is famously known about possums. And what you might not know, however, is that this is actually an involuntary response to extreme fear. So it's not something that they're doing on purpose. It's a physiological reaction to a certain level of terror. Um, it's not the same mechanism, but think of the uh, fainting goats, where if you startle them, they like seize up and fall over. Again, that's not a voluntary response. So when something scares this possum, they end up falling on their side with their mouth open and their tongue flopping out. They clench their little feet and they'll even emit a foul odor through their anus. Their heart rate drops by 50% and their breathing is so slow and shallow that it's almost indetectable. This is the origin of the phrase playing possum, which means to pretend to be injured or even dead in a purposeful act of deception. Opossums are omnivores. They will eat basically anything. In fact, the list of things they'll eat was so long that I'm just going to sum it up as fruit, vegetables, insects, small mammals, amphibians, reptiles, grains, fish, human garbage, and even carrion. Basically anything. <laughs> they will eat 95% of all ticks they encounter, which is an estimated consumption of over 5,000 ticks per possum in a season. That is absolutely remarkable. In captivity, they've been known to engage in cannibalism. So you should never house a weak or injured opossum with others. They are most active in spring and summer and will rest but not hibernate over winter. Their breeding season is very long. It spans from December all the way through to October of the following year, but most young are born between February and June. The female opossum will have one to three litters per year with an average litter size of eight to nine infants, although there has been as many as 20 uh, has been recorded. That's a huge amount of babies. Sadly, however, only one in 10 offspring survive to reproductive adulthood. And this is probably why they have so many. So you'll see this in some species that basically have as many babies as possible to increase the chance of at least one of those babies reaching an age where they can reproduce themselves and therefore pass on their genes. Now, gestation lasts just 11 to 13 days. And newborn opossums are the size of a honeybee. That is exactly the definition or the comparison used when I was looking into this. So if you can imagine it, when those little beardy baby possums come out into the pouch, they are just the size of our beloved honeybees. They will climb from the central birth canal into the pouch where they latch onto one of the 13 nipples. They remain latched for a 
two full months and then emerge from the pouch at two and a half months where they cling to their mother's back. And you've probably seen pictures of a mama possum walking with all these babies clinging to her. The offspring will leave their mothers after around four to five months. During this time of clinging to her, they're learning uh, important survival skills. Like all marsupials, the opossum's reproductive system is bifid, which means it has two vaginas, two uteri, and two sets of ovaries. And to go with this, the male's penis is bifid. It has two heads. And what's really interesting is the sperm actually pair up in the testes and only separate when they encounter an ova or an egg. Sadly, the opossum has a surprisingly short lifespan, living just two years on average in the wild and only four years in captivity. One of the earliest mentions of the Virginia opossum comes from the explorer John Smith in his book that was published in 1608. Opossums were actually a very popular food source for a while in the US, although now it's considered more of a southern tradition. Maybe because of this and like a weird kind of bias that happens between the south and the north, possums are often associated with like hillbillies and poverty and that's often how it's depicted in cartoons and other media. Now as homesteaders you might be wondering will possums kill my chickens? Sadly the answer is that yes they can but it's not as common as say raccoon predation or hawk predation. A possum is actually more likely to be attracted to your coop because of the chicken feed, the grain and the chicken eggs. And it's not uncommon to hear stories about chicken keepers who found fat possums sleeping off their meal inside the coop with the chickens. That said, a full grown opossum is capable of killing your laying hens. So it's best to keep your coop and run as predator proofed as you possibly can. So I know I've covered this before, but as a general reminder, use hardware cloth, that metal netting to cover any areas where a predator might be able to crawl in or reach into and then lay it out as a skirt around the run and the coop, which can help prevent predators from digging under and into the area. So I hope you found this as fascinating as I did. I have always loved possums, but now I think I might be even more in love with them. And right now it is my new favorite little critter. I really hope I get to see some live possums on my property at some point, as I just find them fascinating and I would love to see them waddling about the place in the wild. Okay, so now, we're gonna move on to the book review. As I said, we will be covering Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley, my favorite beekeeper and bee scientist. Now this book was originally published in 2010 and it's available as a hardback, which is what I have, a Kindle, an audiobook via Audible on Amazon and an audio CD. There is no paperback available at this time. This book is often described as a coffee table book. And this actually made me look into what exactly is meant when people refer to books as being coffee table books. And a description I found is the following. A coffee table book is a large, expensive, lavishly illustrated book, 
especially one intended only for casual reading. And that's from the Oxford Language Dictionary. Now, perhaps because of this style, Celie's voice in the book is much more conversational than what we saw in Lives of Bees. As an author, he has a clear voice with some beautiful turns of phrase. I think if you've just read his scholarly work or you're just finished my um, episode series on the Live of Bees or you just finished that book yourself, you might think that Seeley is a moderately talented writer, whereas this book demonstrates that he is vastly talented as an author with real warmth in his recollections. I am thoroughly enjoying the book so far and I definitely see why it's so popular. So the book starts with a prologue. And Seeley opens this with the beekeeper's lament on swarming, the tendency for a honeybee colony to leave the hive with the queen and the majority of the worker bees to find a new home. Because it's bad news for us, we've just lost most of our workforce. Seeley describes the process of swarming and points out how bees do something truly extraordinary. They will hold a democratic debate to choose their new home. Honeybee Democracy focuses on this process of debate and relocation. Now, Seeley states two motives for writing the book. One, to present other biologists and scientists a summary of the disparate research on swarming from the last 60 years, thereby condensing this wealth of knowledge into one place. And number two, to share with beekeepers and general readers the pleasure I have experienced in investigating swarms of honeybees. The closing paragraph is something that I'm actually going to quote in its entirety here because it's a dedication that Seeley makes to one of his teachers. The work described here rests on a solid foundation of knowledge that the late Professor Martin Lindauer, 1918-2008, to created with his studies of the house-hunting bees in the 1950s. I wish to dedicate this book to Martin Lindauer, my friend and teacher, whose pioneering investigations inspired my own explorations of the wonderland of the bees society. Now we move to chapter one, which is an introduction. And much like the lives of bees, he opens the chapter with a poem. Go to the bee then, poet, consider her ways and be wise. George Bernard Shaw, Man and Superman, 1903. Chapter one opens with a brief comment on the long history of human interaction with honeybees. It also highlights the importance of honeybees as pollinators. In North America, managed honeybees are the primary pollinators for over 50, 50 fruit and vegetable crops. Honeybees also produce food for the brain with their unique social structure that has led to decades of curious minds studying this surprisingly complex insect. To quote Seeley, we will see that these little six-legged beauties have something to teach us about building smoothly functioning groups, especially ones capable of exploiting fully the power of democratic decision-making. Although there are many species of honeybees in the world, the focus of this book is Apis mellifera, which was originally native to Western Asia, the Middle East, Africa and Europe, but has now spread throughout the world thanks to human transmission. This section is called Collective Intelligence. 
The importance of choosing the right nest site cannot be overstated. If it's too small, then the bees cannot store enough honey to survive the cold months of winter. If it's too drafty or poorly insulated, then the bees will be unable to maintain an appropriate brood nest temperature and so on and so forth. This important decision is not made by one bee or even a small group of bees, but several thousand. This book seeks to uncover and explain the way in which bees search for nest sites, report their findings and reach an agreement about where to live. To quote Seeley, in short, we will examine the ingenious workings of honeybee democracy. Seeley points out the common misconception that a colony is ruled or governed by the queen bee with the workers obeying her every command like serfs or slaves. Now, although it's true that the colony as a whole is based around the queen's health and survival, she is not a ruler. Instead, it's better to look at her as the reproductive heart of the colony, and the worker bees are her thousands upon thousands of daughters. Over her lifetime, a worker bee steadily adapts herself and her work to the needs of a colony. So as a whole, the workers function together to assess and meet the various changing needs of the colony, from comb building to food storage to brood rearing. In contrast, the queen bee is completely oblivious to all these needs. Her days consist solely of egg laying, and she's capable of laying 1,500 a day at peak production. The queen also secretes a pheromone called queen substance that is transmitted around the hive from bee to bee and it communicates the queen's presence and her health. If this substance dissipates or disappears, the workers will raise a new queen. In late spring and early summer, when colonies become crowded with bees and resources, they will cast a swarm. Approximately a third of the workers stay with the original nest and will rear a new queen. Two thirds of the workers will therefore leave with the original queen and this swarm usually travels 30 metres or 100 feet before resting as a cluster with the queen protected at the centre for a few hours to a few days. Once in this clustered position, several hundred housefinding bees will explore approximately 70 square kilometres or 30 square miles around where they have rested to find a suitable nesting location. Once the decision has been made about where to live, the swarm will fly together directly to the new nest site. Now, how can these tiny brained insects make this decision and do it so well? Seeley states that the answer to this question will be covered in chapters three and four. How do so many bees move together en masse to their new home with such accuracy and cohesion? This is going to be answered in chapters seven and eight. Seeley points out a rather interesting fact. There are roughly 1.5 kilograms or three pounds of bees in a honeybee swarm. And there also happens to be 1.5 kilograms or three pounds of neurons in the human brain. The swarm organizes itself such as, <clears throat> excuse me, such that each individual bee has limited information and intelligence, while the group as a whole makes complicated and accurate decisions. And this is much like how neurons function in our brains. 
Although it might seem absurd to compare neurons in the human brain to honeybees and a honeybee swarm, there are intriguing similarities between the two that have been discovered when comparing literature on honeybees to those on neurobiology of the human brain and monkey brains. So one key example, studies of individual neuron activity associated with eye eye movement decision in monkey brains have found that the decision is basically a competition between alternatives until the one with the most support, in this case, the most neuron firings, win. This same mechanism is found in the collective decision-making of swarming honeybees. So what does this mean? Potentially, it means that there exist general principles of organization for creating groups that are smarter collectively than even the smartest individual among them. And this can be applied to all different parts of our lives as humans and our social structures. In chapter nine, these principles of decision-making mechanisms will be explored. And in chapter 10, Celie reviews what has been learned from how bees structure a group for collective intelligence, and then discusses how this might be applied to our own social structure and decision-making processes. The next section is called Dancing Bees. So now we get a little bit of a history lesson on someone who is a key figure in this book and in the journey, the scientific journey that this book took. So the scientific journey that led to this book started in Germany in the summer of 1944. The distinguished professor of zoology at the University of Munich, Karl von Frisch, made a revolutionary discovery for which he was eventually awarded a Nobel Prize. Professor von Frisch realised that the worker honeybee used dance to communicate distance and direction of a food source from the hive. Now, for about 30 years before this, it was known that a returning worker who had found a food source would perform the waggle dance. In this dance, the bee walks straight on the vertical surface of the comb as she waggles. Then she stops, turns to the left or the right to make a semicircular run back to the start, where she then repeats her waggle dance, followed by another return and so on. Von Frisch knew that this process could take a few seconds to a few minutes. And he knew that fellow worker bees who had followed this dance would eventually fly from the hive in search of the food. Before 1944, von Frisch believed that the dance followers were learning the fragrance of the food source and that they would then search from the hive in ever expanding circles until they found the scent match. But then in 1944, von Frisch realised that the dance followers were not searching blindly. They actually searched only in the vicinity of where the dancer had foraged, even if that spot was extremely far away from the hive. And so this means that the worker bees were acquiring forager location as well as the food source scent. And this made him wonder... Could the waggle dance be a form of directional communication? Well, the answer proved to be yes. 
In the summer of 1945, close examination of returning foragers led von Frisch to realise that the Waggle Run produces a miniature reenactment of the bee's recent flight outside the hive, thus accurately conveying the location of the food source. The duration of the waggle run equals the length of the outbound journey, with one second of waggle indicating approximately 1,000 metres or six-tenths of a mile of flight. The angle of the waggle run relative to straight up the vertical comb equals the angle of the outward flight from the hive relative to the direction of the sun. Thus, if a bee waggle if a bee waggle, if a bee waggle runs directly up the comb, then the food source is in the same direction as the sun. If the bee waggle run is 40 degrees off the vertical, then the flight is 40 degrees from the direction of the sun. I have a very nifty little diagram I found that I will be posting on my blog so you can see this more clearly. And this is really astonishing information that was discovered because it means that the bees are communicating quite complex information and the other bees are able to decode it so accurately. So while working on this groundbreaking research, von Frisch was also supervising a young graduate student called Martin Lindauer. Now, Lindauer is an especially important figure in this story as he pioneered the study of honeybee democracy in swarms. Lindauer was born in the foothills of the Bavarian Alps, and he was the second youngest of a whopping 15 one-five children, which is absolutely bonkers. His family were poor farmers, but Lindauer was an astonishing student, and thus he was able to win a scholarship to a distinguished boarding school in Landshut, Germany. In April 1939, just eight days after his high school graduation, he was drafted into Hitler's workforce to dig trenches. Six months later, he was transferred into the army. July 1942, while fighting on the Russian front, he was wounded by an exploding grenade that caused very deep shrapnel wounds. He was thus removed from the front lines and this very likely saved his life. Of the 156 men that he left behind, they were part of his unit, only three survived the war. While recovering in Munich, Lindauer's doctor suggested to him that he visit the university, and in particular that he should uh, find a lecture by the now famous Professor von Frisch. Lindauer did just this, and hearing von Frisch talk about cell division made Lindauer feel he had returned to a new world of humanity where people could create, not just destroy, and he resolved at that moment to study biology. After being discharged from the army in the summer of 1943, he started his studies at the University of Munich. Lindauer started his PhD research on honeybees in the spring of 1945, with Professor von Frisch acting as his advisor. This following section is called Dirty Dances. Now, Lindauer had an eye for small details that would ultimately prove to be significant. This is what led to his studies in house hunting honeybees. In fact, he called this, to quote him directly, 
the most beautiful experience of all his scientific work. In the spring of 1949, he chanced upon a swarm hanging on a bush on the grounds of the University of Munich. Staying to watch the bees, he noticed bees performing the waggle dance on the surface of the swarm. So this worker bee is dancing along the backs of her sisters. Initially, he assumed that the dancers were reporting on food sources nearby, but closer observation led to him noticing that these dancers were returning with no pollen and no nectar. He then noticed that these dancers were rather dirty and dusty, and he decided that he was going to find out what was clinging to them. So he caught these little dirty dancers, he used a clean paintbrush to dust off the particles clinging to them, and then he studied the dust under a microscope, where he found that the particles were of soot, brick dust, soil, and even flour. And this made him realise that these dancers were not foraging for food, but were instead house hunting bees scouting out possible nest sites in the rubble of bombed Munich. Although he was eager to test this hypothesis, in 1949, the economy was frankly tanking and the university was short on bee colonies to study. So it was ruled that all swarms from the university hives must be captured and then hived on university grounds. But two years later, in 1951, things had improved enough that Professor von Friesch granted permission for Lindauer to test his theory. In chapters three to six, the story of this test and ultimate discovery will be detailed. But for now, we consider how Lindauer tested his hypothesis that these dancers are scout bees. In the summer of 1951, he studied the dancers of nine swarms. Each dancer was painstakingly labelled with a, a dot of paint and her direction and distance of flight were noted. Lindauer observed that the first dancers to appear announced 12 or more locations, but after some time, which ranged from a few hours to a few days, the dancers would announce one location in increasing numbers. In the hour before the swarm would depart, all dancers indicated just one direction and distance. So Lindauer reasoned that this final location would be the new nest site. To test this, he tried to follow the swarms home by running after them through the streets of Munich. And incredibly, he actually succeeded three times. And that's no mean feat. If you can imagine yourself trying to chase after a swarm of bees, that's pretty difficult. Now, each location indicated by the dancer's last dance did in fact match their new nest site. So the conclusion is that these dirty dancers were the house hunting scout bees. This section is called Catching the Buzz. And we return now to our author, Thomas Seeley. In June of 1952, Seeley was born in Pennsylvania, some 4,000 miles or 6,500 kilometres from Munich, where Lindauer was in the second year of his swarm studies. A few years later, Seeley's family moved to Ithaca, New York, where he has mostly lived ever since. Seeley recounts that his younger years were full of the natural world. He would explore it, he would be out and about, and while he was investigating the world around him, he discovered two hives managed by a local beekeeper and spent quite some time just watching the bees going about their business. 
He says that it was in high school when he became, to quote him, utterly spellbound by the bees. In the summer of 1969, he happened upon a swarm hanging from a tree limb and he quickly put together a small hive, put the swarm in it and then brought them home. To quote him, Now I had these little sparks of wonderment living in a box that I could gently open to watch them closely. And I did so for several hours every day after work, mesmerised by the intricate behaviours of the individual bees and by the peace of their great community. Seeley started his freshman year at Dartmouth College in the fall of 1970 with the aim of becoming a doctor who would just keep bees in his spare time. Throughout his time at Dartmouth, however, he wrote about bees whenever the merest reason to do so appeared, and he even chose chemistry as a major area of study with the goal to one day decode the chemical language of the bees. Each summer, he would also work at the Dice Laboratory for Honeybee Studies at Cornell University. Roger A. Morse, who was the director of the lab at the time, noticed Seeley's passion for bees and encouraged him to consider graduate school with bees as a focus. During his final two years at Dartmouth, Seeley did come to the realisation that his interest in entomology or the study of insects far outweighed his interest in medicine. And although he did apply to medical school and was actually accepted by three, which is no small feat, he ended up choosing to go to Harvard, where he had been accepted for graduate school, working with Edward O. Wilson, who is a noted insect sociologist and very gifted writer. When Seeley started at Harvard in the fall of 1974, he worked under the direct advisement of Bert Holdobler, which I really hope I'm saying correctly, who studied ant behaviour and is actually relatively infamous now for his absolutely groundbreaking work on ants. Holdobler had recently arrived from Frankfurt, Germany, and had been hired by Harvard specifically to share and teach von Frisch's approach to animal behavioural study, which was relatively unique at the time. And this approach was close observation of animals in nature and then conducting experimental investigations into the mechanisms of said behaviour. Holdobler had studied under Lindauer while in Germany and so was familiar with honeybees as well as his beloved ants. He encouraged Seeley's love of bees and the two quickly became friends. Seeley knew that he wanted his PhD thesis research to dig even deeper into Lindauer's study of how honeybee colonies work as a unit or superorganism, and was especially keen to learn more about the decision-making process of swarms. Seeley was so fascinated by Lindauer's work on the subject that during his undergraduate years, he tracked down the full 62-page paper, which was entirely in German. But that wasn't going to stop Seeley. No, he took an intro to German language course and bought a German to English dictionary in order to painstakingly translate each word of that 62 page study. And Seeley realised when he completed this that Lindauer's study, like all good scientific studies, ultimately raised more questions than it answered. And Seeley wanted to be the one to answer those questions. 
So this book is Celie's attempt to show what was learned by Lindauer in the 1950s and also what was learned by Celie and others since the 1970s, all focused on the decision-making process of the honeybee swarm. This work illuminates how evolution, via natural selection, over millions of years, has shaped the behaviour of the honeybee into a single collective intelligence. To quote Seeley directly, This book tries to be a window into the private world of a honeybee colony. If it bolsters in any way an appreciation of these little creatures for the beauty of their social behaviour, along with their service in keeping the world flowering and fruitful, then it will have achieved its purpose. And that's it for this week. That is the end of chapter one. I am really enjoying this book and I hope that you are too. I'm sure that many of you have probably already read this, but I hope that if you have, you are still interested in this kind of refresher of the information therein. And I will say that going from the lives of bees to this book has been very interesting. As the format is quite dry, it's definitely more of a um, collection of scientific studies, which with very little uh, additional information. Whereas this book is a much easier read, it has very enchanting turns of phrase, and it's giving us this sort of background information into the researchers, which I think builds a more personal collection. Um, I actually think Celie is a very gifted writer. Now, probably in my very first year, so we're coming up three years ago when I was studying bees, but I wasn't keeping them yet. I listened to a, a podcast episode where Celie mentioned that he was working on a book of poetry about bees and about his work that was going to be illustrated. And sadly, I haven't heard anything since. And I'm really hoping that it's just one of those books that's taking a very long time to publish because I would absolutely love to read anything that Celie writes, but particularly poetry because I sometimes write poetry myself. And when I was younger, I um, actually wrote a huge amount of poetry and um, I just, I love to read it and I love bees. So it seems like the perfect combination. Next episode, I'm going to continue with the book review and I hope that you'll join me. I don't know your don't know yet whether it will just be chapter two or whether it will be chapter two and three. I'm gonna see how my notes go and how long that takes. But thank you for listening and for following along with me. I really hope you enjoy this book series. And I wish you all a very safe and merry holiday season. Whether you are um, Christian and this is a time for you to reflect in church. Whether you are more into giftmas and this is just a time to share gifts with the ones that you love. Or whether you are a godless heathen like myself, who is rather partial to pagan history and is celebrating Yule and the fact that we're going into the time of year when the days are getting longer. And that means that hopefully spring is not too far away. Whatever you celebrate, whatever you believe, I really hope you just have a wonderful time with your loved ones and that you stay safe. Now, this is the point where I'm going to discuss some health news. So if you'd rather skip that, you can turn off the episode now. You can um, go hug your hens and then wash your hands <laughs> and merry yule to you. Okay, so if you're sticking around, it's because you're interested in me and my weirdness and my struggles. So um, 
I want to start with some good news. The first is that I did turn the corner with my back issue. I do still need to take a muscle relaxer before bed, but I'm no longer taking my over-the-counter painkillers like naproxen and Tylenol throughout the day. And I generally just feel a whole lot better. I am still stiff and I do need to keep up with the heat application and the stretches, but I definitely feel a huge improvement and it's a big relief. I do feel like my seasonal affective disorder is starting to rear its head. Um, I've noticed that I've been self-critical and I've experienced a dark mood. I've also had days where I just hate everyone and everything and I'll just be so angry for no reason. Um, I tend to close in and be very quiet during this time because I don't want to take it out on anyone, particularly my husband, who's basically stuck in the house with me. And I knew it was bad when I had this day that even the dogs were driving me up the wall because Chappie wanted to go in and out all day. He loves to sit in the snow, but then his feet gets tired. So he comes in to warm up and then he wants to go straight back out. And if I don't let him, he's like scratching at the door and scratching at the windows and working up the girls. And then the girls were rubbing up against me every time I tried to move. So I'm like tripping over them because they're like physically rubbing on me. And I was just so frustrated and mad. And it really stood out to me because I'm not a patient person, except with my animals, where I somehow have endless patience and indulgence. So it really kind of made me stop, like examine why I was so mad. And I'm not sure there's a a full reason, but I could kind of step back a little bit. And then I purposely spent time with my dogs, kind of snuggling or doing some treats training with them you know like uh, getting them to sit and lie down or give me their paw just to kind of remind me like why I love them so much like how important they are to me (laughs) and why I put up with the little stinkers so this really made me realize that seasonal affective disorder was definitely kicking in and I'm doing the usual self-care things like exercising regularly sticking to a sleep schedule which basically means not sleeping until noon and then staying up all night you know, eating well, doing little things that make me happy. And then also letting myself just be unhappy because I tend to have a habit of if I feel bad, I try and run away from it by just being busy. But, you know, sometimes I just have to remind myself it's okay to be unhappy and I can, I know from experience it's not going to last. I've also been using my light therapy lamp every morning, which I really recommend. And I talked about last year. You can find them, you know, if you go on Amazon and put in like light therapy, it will come up with different options. And I do think it makes a difference. Um, And I know as well that some of it is the holidays. So the holidays are hard for lots of people, um, myself included. Um, And it can be particularly difficult for those that are estranged from their family or maybe have a complicated family situation and it could be a struggle and uh, you might find that you get sad or you feel that your anxiety gets worse and I definitely do. Um, Around the holidays I get cranky which is part of my anxiety and it's it's in part because of my childhood and this Christmas is uh, particularly difficult because uh well for a lot of us it's a challenge because 2020 has been frankly a shit year you know people have lost jobs they've lost loved ones they've lived under this constant uh threat of the pandemic and and concern about our health and lockdown and quarantine and just changing stuff and so a lot of people are struggling even people who 
adore their families. They're struggling maybe because they can't be with their families. Um, So it's hard, you know, I think I've reached a point where I'm just, I'm done with 2020. But also this Christmas is hard because it is almost a year since I went no contact with my father. And I did leave avenues of communication open, but he hasn't been in touch beyond a cursory like happy birthday email. And even with the global pandemic and the fact that I've been living in a hotspot, he hasn't checked on me at all. He absolutely seized upon the opportunity to basically drop me as a hot potato and not put forth any effort. And it's very strange because I've actually considered going no contact with him for the last 12 years. And now that it's finally happened, I thought I would feel better and that I could close the door on that chapter of my life. And yes, in some ways it has been better. I don't have to deal with the narcissism and the cruelty. I don't have to deal with his unwillingness to see me as a real person and instead focus on his idea of who I should be, which is basically barefoot and pregnant. But I'm also wrestling with the realization that when all is said and done, my father simply doesn't love me enough to make any effort to be a part of my life. And that's really difficult and it pops up at weird times where I'll be upset about something completely different and then suddenly I'll realize that actually what I'm upset about is the fact that my father has taken this opportunity to demonstrate to me how little I mean to him. So I'm no stranger to having problematic family issues and I'm sharing this to say that it's okay to not be okay. And if you're not okay right now, you are not alone. If you find yourself looking at other happy families and feeling lost, broken, maybe even jealous, you know, I promise you that these it's okay to feel that way. Um, that's normal and you're not alone in that. It's not all happy families out there. A number of us struggle with our familial relationships. And I'd also like to give you permission, if you need to hear it, to just cut toxicity from your life and remind you that family can be chosen. If you find that you're consistently being asked to give up parts of yourself because of cries of, but they're family, well, I would like to remind you that you do not have to set yourself on fire to keep others warm. Don't put yourself last. Don't choke down your own pain in order to avoid rocking the boat. It is 100% okay to build a family of your own through mutual respect and love. I personally feel so fortunate to have the the friends that I do and they are absolutely my chosen family. I mean, I do have my mum and my brother in England and I have my in-laws in Florida, so it's not all bad. I have people in my life that I care about. And also, you know what, if you're not ready to make big changes, if the idea of like cutting someone off is terrifying, that's okay as well. 
You do what you need to get through the holidays. It has been a monumentally shit sandwich of a year and you deserve some downtime and a chance to relax. So do the things that make you happy, whatever that is. Take care of yourself and remember, bad times don't last forever. So from my little hermit house in Ohio, I am wishing you a joyous, safe and relaxing holiday. I hope 2021 treats you well and I hope you'll join me in looking to the future and hoping for the best. So basically, I just want to end this by saying that I am sending so much love from this absolutely crazy British woman to all of you. Now go forth and hug those chickens and then wash your hands. Okay, guys, you have an absolutely phenomenal winter break. Take care. Bye-bye.